The Questions Log, Week 6. Time is broken. Dead by lead? Further time is different. The Four Horsemen will end her reign? He won't smell it. Find the last L. Man of Steel. Sonic disrupt Time Masters, Time Servants. The Reach, the Reach, the Reach. The tornado is in pieces. I'm not kryptonite. It hurts to breathe. Two thousand years from now, the scarab is eternal? Where is the courier? Who is supernova? What happened to the son of Superman? Where is the Batman? Who is the Batwoman? TE versus AU plus PB. Who is Diana Prince? Don't ask the question. It lies. Secret 5. Mortal Savage. Who is Supernova? World War 3? Why? How? Someone is monitoring. They see us. They see me. Chimera lives again. The Lazarus Pit rises. When am I? I'm supposed to be dead? The old gods are dead and the new gods want what's left. Others? This is 52 Pickup. Greetings and welcome back to 52 Pickup, a podcast about the greatest comic you've never heard of. I'm professional DC Comics expert Alex Jaffe. And joining me, as always, is my delightful co-host, the newlywed Gita Jackson. Congratulations, Gita. Hello. (laughs) This is my first work thing post-marriage. So congratulations to you. Yeah, I think we're finally seeing post-crisis Gita. (laughs) Oh, my God. Absolutely. Although the wedding was lovely. Everything worked great. Nothing was, everything was perfect. It was Really, really wonderful. But there was definitely a long period of crisis leading up to it. (laughs) But that's over now, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. Now we get to do the tie-ins, which is where all the juicy stuff happens anyway. We have a guest for the first time on this show. You've gotten to know us in the past five or six episodes, depending on whether or not you skipped the Zero episode. And uh, I thought it would be time to start inviting other people to talk about 52 with us. So I wanted to kick things off with one of the people I respect most in comic book journalism, the author of over 14,000 articles on comic book resources for almost 20 years now, including the essential comic book legends revealed column, Mr. Brian Cronin. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for coming. I love my cat is also welcoming you. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Yeah, so what's your, how did you get sucked into this crazy comic book world? Because for Gita and I, 52 represented a major threshold opening for us. But I I imagine you've been in the game a little bit longer. It's fascinating. Uh, I, I remember seeing something, Alex, you mentioning 52 being a major early influence for you in mm-hmm. really getting into comics. And I was like, oh man, I was blogging about comics then. That's That makes me feel old. Yeah, yeah you were already in the game. <laughs> yeah, you were already into CBR. One of the things I do for this column, uh, for this podcast rather, is I look at the blogs that were written at the time about 52, where people are wildly incorrectly speculating about what it is and where it's going to go. And you were one of the people doing that. <laughs> yeah, th- of course. How, so what was your entryway into all this? And what did it mean to you at the time it was coming out? Well, as as we know about 52, the oddity going in, we all thought it was X. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly, we knew it was not X. Right. <laughs> in fact, I even think by this issue, rereading it now, 
even by now, it was pretty clear it was not what they originally advertised it as. Absolutely yeah. not. No. no, I think that's definitely true. <laughs> Things are pretty screwy in this issue in particular. <laughs> I mean, at the time, I have really strong memories at the time, like reading it week to week and being like, uh, this is really weird and really special to me. But like, do you have any strong memories of like when you got your hands on an issue and just like the moment where you realized like, well, this is not going to be a normal book by any means? Well, looking at that creative team, we knew going in with a, a roster like that, oh, yeah. it was going to be something special. Yeah, yeah. It was unclear for a little while whether it was going to be special in a positive or a negative sense. <laughs> That's very yeah. fair. The yeah. idea was that you would get four of the biggest names in comic book writing into the same writer's room. But what they neglected to realize was that those people knew they were the biggest names in comics. And they were willing to use that authority to their advantage. Uh, to get away with some stuff that other more journeyman writers might not have been able to, as evidenced in later attempts to replicate 52's formula. So 52 represented that big world-opening moment for us, but what was that for you? What sucked you into the world of comic books, Brian Cronin? Jeez, it, it's so funny that uh, in one of my books, I mentioned my first issue of X-Men, mm -hmm. and it's so weird how these first issues, there is no standard suck-in point because I stepped in the middle of a storyline not knowing who any of these people are. Yes, that's how to do it. And yet, it was intriguing, so. That's exactly what's going on in 52. It's, you're walking into this comic book where all of these characters you may never have seen before are in, like, the third or fourth or fifth arc in their, uh, in their personal journeys. Yeah. And I think what the question that I probably get the most from people who are want to get into comic books are what's the best place to start? And I have to tell them you've already asked the wrong question. Uh, <laughs> comics, especially when it comes to the big two Western publishers, it's about throwing yourself into it and following what catches your interest because it's so vast that whatever corner of it catches your eye, you're going to find a world of stories just existing behind that panel. And 52 kind of exemplifies the best of that, in my opinion. I mean, those early X-Men comics come pretty close to me also, yeah. you know? Those are some great, great books <laughs> that are still really readable now. Yeah, but the, the X-Men, they're kind of all about the same thing, aren't they? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, do I? <laughs> No. I realize there's also what appeals to the quote-unquote typical comic book reader, yeah. and then there's what appeals to weirdos like myself. Right, yeah. exactly. That's true. Where I remember getting out of the library an early comic book reference book from and just, you know, examining all those little facts and being, like, obsessed over those various things mm -hmm. that I don't think a typical reader was uh, picking up on or shouldn't be picking up on. <laughs> That's true. A black label Batman book will always outsell a black label The Question book. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. That's the world we're in. So this is a huge issue we've brought you on for. Yep. Uh, we get the introduction of a brand new team of superheroes meant to expand the world of DC Comics. We get the introduction of The Blackboard, a thing we've been talking about from the very beginning of this show that's going to have huge ramifications for the way we talk about DC Comics for the rest of time, up to today even. 
this episode is probably going to be a long one, uh, <laughs> unless we get our tongues tied and end up rushing <laughs> through it. Uh, but we should start by talking talent. Uh, with this issue, we have Joe Bennett back on pencils with collaborator Rui Jose. Uh, Nick Napolitano is lettering both the main story and the backup this week, which is a first. This series has had trouble finding a consistent letterer. We've talked about Joe Bennett's personal difficulties in the past already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the bitch is back. Yeah, the bitch is back. <laughs> this is not the most canceled comic book issue, but there, no. yeah. There's definitely lineups where you're like, oh boy, that's going in the vault, you know? <laughs> you know let, let's say the most problematic things about this issue are not the art. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's take a look at that cover. Now, this cover is interesting to me because it's got Hal Jordan front and center on there, a character who is not really very important to the story of 52. But it seems like the editors didn't know that at the time. Yeah. There's a lot going on with this cover. There's like a gesture towards uh, the idea of the Soviet bloc, which is at that at the time when this comic came out, was not something that really existed anymore. Right. Um, but there was, of course, this post-9-11 feeling of us, the Americans, being against this nebulous axis of evil, that there's terrorists out there all the time. And this is like very much a visual representation of the vibe. Yeah, you have this profile of a huge Arab man lurking in the background. <laughs> it's so rough when you look at it now. Yeah, that's Black <laughs> it's Adam. A lot. Yeah, but it it's extremely evocative. It feels like something out of the 1980s to me, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is especially, I guess, appropriate to Hal Jordan, who at the time, Jeff Johns had kind of already started writing as a sort of Tom Cruise, Maverick, Top Gun kind of character. That's true. That's how we ended up. That's a direct line, again, from 52 to a representation of a DC character in a movie, because that's exactly how Ryan Reynolds comes off in the Green Lantern movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you get the sense that Mav was kind of in the back of Jeff John's head the entire time he was on that uh, Green Lantern run from 2005 to 2012, 2013? Something like that. 2013, I think. 2013, yeah. That was when. Yeah, March 23rd. There we go. Right on the board. I, only, I did an article on it recently. That's the only reason I know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So we've got this lineup of Chinese superheroes who we're going to learn a little bit more about as we go. Uh, kind of an, an effort to expand the borders of the DC universe beyond the United States of America by a bunch of Americans and one Scottish yeah. guy. Uh, yeah, that's where we are. And we can go right from the cover to week six, day one, why don't we? Where we meet the villain Manthrax. Now, Brian Cronin, what can you tell me about the villain, the history of Manthrax, the rich, established villain with uh, <laughs> so much deep lore behind him? What do you know about Manthrax, Brian? I know nothing about Manthrax. Well, that's good because this is his only appearance. <laughs> That would make sense then. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Manthrax is a villain created by Booster Gold to drum up publicity for Booster Gold, an actor that he's paying off the books so that he can make himself look good in front of the cameras, trying to build up his PR. Can't decide if his name is Bob or Bill. And uh, we see uh, Booster paying, paying Manthrax off 
uh, right after their televised encounter. He's being to, such a dick in this scene also. Right? Yeah. It's weird how much yeah. Booster Gold is being here unnecessarily. So. Yeah. He's like getting a huge favor done for him. Let's yeah. be real. You know? <laughs> like, he, this man is like... This man has dirt on you. Treat him nicely. <laughs> well, you got to understand, Booster's had a rough time of it. He's made a lot of bad investments. Uh, Skeets keeps seeming to give him exactly the wrong information of what he's looking for. Almost like history is changing, or is it? And, uh, you know, we see a bunch of civilians at home playing with Booster Gold action figures, wearing uh, T-shirts of companies that he has the logos of on his... Uh, Costume. Yeah, on his suit there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's interspersed with the real Booster, who is just, like, not being a very nice person. No. He says – he gets an invite to this man's improv you know, and, like, acting group. Yeah. And he says no and, like, <laughs> makes fun of him for being an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Which is – isn't that literally what Booster is doing? He's... Yeah, he's doing – he's basically being an actor. He's right. doing all the parts of acting that isn't actually acting. And also he is acting. At, he you is know? acting. He yeah. is playing a role. He's following a script that he wrote. <laughs> Although it is interesting that Manthrax also is surprised by how much money he got paid for this. Yeah. That's I true. Like, <laughs> is that negotiated? Can they not talk yeah. about it? Yeah. Booster, yeah. come on. Get an accountant. <laughs> right. <laughs> you got to figure this out. Yeah, a, a lot of actors aren't very good at managing themselves, and that's how the Hollywood business was born. And yeah, that's why you know. there's a strike happening as we record this episode. Yeah, there we go. Uh, it, it all goes back to 52. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this takes us straight to the, the name of the issue, though, which uh, further reinforces the Cold War uh, axis of evil sort or of vibe, you know, Red Scare stuff. The issue is called China Syndrome. China Syndrome. It's like the beginning of an avalanche of problems. <laughs> do you know where the term China Syndrome comes from, Gita? I do not, actually. How about you, Brian Cronin? I mean, it was a movie. It was a movie, and that's probably what they're referencing here. They're probably referencing the 1979 movie with Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon and Michael Douglas. But originally, China Syndrome was coined by nuclear physicist Ralph Lapp in 1971 to describe what would happen in a nuclear meltdown if uh, the nuclear fallout got out of the uh, plant and started poisoning the Earth, uh, quote-unquote going all the way to China. So it, we, uh, so it, it represents a ruined Earth from the fallout of a horrible accident gone wrong. Well, that sucks. <laughs> but they're probably just talking about the Jane Fonda movie. Wilfred Brimley is also in that movie I just learned. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's having a good time. I love it when actors are having a good time. I think he's dead. Uh, I meant in the film, but <laughs> I hope he's having a good time in the afterlife also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, R.I.P. to a legend. God, I don't want to turn the page. I did, just to sort of rip the bandaid off. Here we are. Here it is. It's the Great Ten, baby. Oh, my God. I actually have a quote from Morrison to Newsarama in 2007 about the creation of the Great Ten that Please I wanted share to with me. throw in here. So we're in a, a, a two-play splash. We got Green Lanterns, John Stewart and Hal Jordan fighting a whole bunch of guys. And we're about to learn who these guys are in the next couple of pages. They are the Great Ten. Who are the Great Ten? Well, they are a Chinese super team. And they are the creation of Grant Morrison, who a few is just a few... Episodes ago, you may have heard me say is like my favorite comic book writer. Yeah. <laughs> they 
fall on their face a little bit sometimes. They get a bit too big for their britches sometimes, I think, with their big ideas. And this is one of those times. Uh, I mean, particularly when writing any non-white character. Yeah, I don't know why they just turn their racism dial all the way up when they do this, (laughs) but they do. But this is what Morrison had to say to Newsarama in 2007. I'm pleased with the introduction of the Great Ten who grew out of Paul Levitz's desire to see more international superheroes. After the the first 52-story meeting, I went home, dig out the reference material on Chinese history and culture I'd used to help create the backstory of the Zorn character in New X-Men, and hammered a huge document complete with detailed origin stories and backgrounds for every member of the Great Ten, as well as some details of the Chinese government's super-functionary program. Uh, One thing I want to say about that is that when Morrison conceived of Zorn for the New Mm X-Men, Zorn wasn't actually a person. Zorn was an alias that Magneto was using. So Zorn being an Orientalist caricature made sense and also worked with the story, right? Because a bunch of white people that are not familiar with these tropes would be more trusting of this sort of wise guru type Chinese character. Here he's building out real people for that apparently fight crime for a real country. And it just does not feel that way. Uh, not even in the way where Superman does feel like representative of America, you know? He is like a caricature of American ideas. He's a great big blue Boy Scout, you know? But he also feels very American. These feel like, these characters feel like a non-Chinese person's idea of China. Absolutely. And not something that would erupt out of Chinese culture. It's a small world approach to yes. uh, cultural Very much a Disney world, it's a small world approach where... We will meet them as we continue looking at this scene and the way it's laid out. For what it's worth, the a lot of the costumes they have are very cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, those were designed by our, uh, I, I believe our cover artist, J.G. Jones, designed the looks of all of the Great Ten. Yeah, J.G. Jones is great. So props yeah. to you, J.G. Jones. No, no complaints. <laughs> You're not the problem here. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of thinking now, way back in 1980, Marvel was going to have their Olympics. They're going to have a Summer Olympics one-shot. Yeah. And Bill Mantlo introduced all these international heroes. And similarly, it's the most basic stereotypical (laughs) (laughs) things for each of the heroes. Here's an Irish hero. She's Shamrock. Things like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This reminds me of that sort of uh, approach. Not not like DC hadn't done the same with the Global Guardians. Where they, I believe, had an Irish hero named Jack O'Lantern. Oh my god. That's so upsetting. I keep bracing for the IRA hero. (laughs) I don't think they were woke enough for that. Yeah, it does. This is basically a style of creating diversity within your, you know, your intellectual property that has completely gone out of favor. I think basically right after 52, people started to realize that audiences and readers were no longer going to accept this. And also, it was not something that, like, you could get white people to glom onto anymore. It was embarrassing, you know? Right. So we've dealt a little bit with, hey, where's Superman? Where's Batman? Where's Wonder Woman? Where's The Flash? One thing we have not considered yet or addressed yet is where are all the Green Lanterns? And uh, this is the first time we see Hal and John active on Earth uh, since the fallout of Infinite Crisis, at least chronologically. Uh, So that's probably the reason we see Hal so prominently on the cover, but here he's basically serving as a delivery mechanism to introduce 
the Great Ten. He and John are pursuing a classic Silver Age Green Lantern villain, Evil Star, who's uh, driving a star-shaped spaceship across the Great Wall of China. And literally over the Great Wall of China is where we see the Great Ten in action for the first time. And uh, they're being uh, commanded from a command center called the Great Wall. Is it supposed to literally be in the Great Wall of China? Is that I what's happening here? I think so, right? Like, there's this illustration on the next page where the panel in the top left-hand corner shows, like, stairs coming down in a compound next to the wall. Yeah. I think that's supposed to be, like, adjacent to, like, a compound that is, like, connected to or adjacent to the Great Wall of China. So I guess it's kind of like when Checkmate was based in Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. It basically is, you know? <laughs> like, that, to me, that would work, right? Just, to, like, because that's such a ridiculous comic booky thing, <laughs> you know? It's sort of like how in every anime, every shoujo anime, all the girls have to pose in front of the Tokyo Tower. right. You know, uh, that's just one of those things. So they're fighting with the Great Ten over airspace jurisdiction. Evil stars in our airspace, which means he's our villain, which is a very kind of contrived way to create a create a conflict between them. So we've got these two Green Lanterns versus all these new heroes. I would like to play a game with you folks and introduce each of these new Chinese heroes one by one. Oh boy. And you'll tell me on a scale of one to ten – how interested you'd be in seeing them in their own solo breakout series. All right, let's do this. First, we have the team leader, August General in Iron. He's got hard metal plates on his skin. Uh, we find out later that uh, they're the result of him being exposed to a Durlin ship crash. He can't take it off. He's stuck in the armor. He's basically a Chinese ultimate Iron Man. What do you give August General in Iron? Simply because I liked Ultimate Iron Man. I'm interested, right? There's some there's some meat on that bone. If you got the right writer and the right artist, you could have a fun book with that. Just because it's like a tried and true concept, right? Stick a guy in a suit of armor. He can't take it off. There you go. Bam. Yeah, you could do a lot with that. You could do something with that. So like a seven? Yeah, I give it a seven. It might not be a good book, but I'd buy the first issue. Like most of these, I'm going low for most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought a seven was charitable. <laughs> yeah, I, a seven is as high as I'd go for that concept. And I am I would go, like, that's peak my curiosity enough to buy an issue level, but not necessarily I'm whole hog on this idea. I almost think, for a, a good deal of the Great Ten, that they were almost given short shrift intentionally almost. Yeah. yeah. Like, don't want to give them too many good ideas, because then... <laughs> yeah, then somebody was going to have to write a book about this shit. <laughs> overshadow the other ones. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I feel like you're right because some of these like hero power concept ideas, you just could not write a story about. Right. Them. You simply couldn't. Uh we'll we'll get to some of that. Uh I wanna go through I wanna keep going through these one by one. What do you think? What's your I need a number score for a Oh, one. number uh three. All right. Next we got uh accomplished perfect physician. Now this guy, he uses his voice to manipulate sound waves which can do whatever he wants it to do. Uh, kind of like Rotlop fan of uh, the F-sharp bell. If, yes. uh Yeah, my, 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 my Alan Moore homies know what's up. <laughs> He's a generational hero. He's the latest in 16 generations of accomplished perfect physicians, kind of an avatar to the last airbender thing going on. Um, or say probably what Morrison is calling back to is the doctor from the authority here. Yeah, I, I would say that's literally accomplished what they're doing physician. Right now. Yeah, I yeah, think that's it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so basically, hey, it's the doctor, but Chinese. Uh, what, what do you guys think of what? What do you guys think about this one? I don't give a fuck. 
<laughs> like don't care about this character at all. Yeah. Two. Two. Brian. Five, five is higher than uh, for most. Of, I'll give it five because at least Morrison had something to say with this character. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. There is again. There is like a tiny little kernel of an idea. I don't think it's enough to build a story out of. No. Well, how many of these characters can you even imagine showing up in another comic by themselves? Right. Like, I, you're giving me nothing. For me, like, if I was a writer and I was told by editorial, you have to use accomplice physician in your next issue, I would be like, come on. Like, uh, there's nothing for me. There's always room in a story for a superhero doctor. It can't just be Dr. Midnight every time you need a second guy. <laughs> Fair. That's okay. what he's for. Next, we have breakout star Mother of Champions. Oh, my God. <laughs> the best one. Do I have to give a number or can I just put zero? <laughs> <laughs> you, zero is acceptable. Okay, now, great. Mother of Champions is basically a human cloning facility where she can give birth to an adult baby within a week. <laughs> and they grow up into a perfect warrior and then die a week later. Give birth to an adult baby is such a <laughs> phrase. Oh, my God. Zero. Zero. You, you have to understand, she was exposed to a Higgs boson particle. That's oh, how she I got see. her power. That fucking explains everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's what happens. It's so weird. Speaking of that Olympics thing I mentioned, this is very much like the, the Chinese hero created for that one, collectively. Oh, God. Oh, my God. What can you tell wow. us about that one? Collective man, basically, think Madrox, the multiple man, oh. just Chinese. So it's just, just hey, aren't there a lot of people in China? Yeah, that's like, wow, what <laughs> careful notes Grant Morrison took about Chinese yes. culture. China equal big. <laughs> I, I looked at the population number and I was like, wow. <laughs> I'll go two. Yeah. Okay, that's a two. Okay, our lowest score yet. Next we got Ghost Fox Killer, uh, best known for her collaboration with the RZA, the Jizza, Method Man, Raekwon, Master Killer, Inspector Get Deck, You Got an Old Dirty Bastard. Uh, she comes from a mystical tribe of Ghost Fox women and has a death touch, that, that dim mock sort of thing you see in every Kung Fu movie, yeah. uh, with the ability to manipulate the spirits of her victims, uh, kind of like Katana or Ragman. Zero reaction to my uh, Ghost Face Killer joke, huh? I, okay. <laughs> I mean, he made sense. Yeah. He had no comment. He was like, yes, wise. <laughs> um, here's my thing about this type of character. This type of Asian female character shows up regardless of her background in everything. Yeah. There's an Overwatch character that has a, a fox spirit also. Yeah, that's true. Kiriko. There's, this is like, as you mentioned, there's already a DC character that's pretty similar to this character. There's a, a plethora of Asian women with fox spirit characters. You can't, Morrison, you cannot tell me this came from your deep research, <laughs> you know? <laughs> For me, this is like a, a four because it like, it works, but I don't care, you know? Brian, what do you think? I like that. That's good. I'll go three for that reason. I'm going to be two. <laughs> she's right. It does work. That, but one less. Got it. it. Yeah. I like you that. know, they wouldn't keep doing it if it didn't work. It's just right. very boring. Next, we have Socialist Red Guardsman. Uh, this is basically Chinese Rocket Red. He's allegedly China's longest operating hero, uh, having gained solar powers in a nuclear accident, and he fights crime from an alien containment suit. So he's kind of half human bomb, half Rocket Red, I guess. And he's got socialist right in his name. Uh, so that's something. Get China Mieville to write this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the name for me is so good. I yeah. personally love the name because it is like it reaches the pulp level that like the flex mentalo level right. that I know that Morrison is reaching for. It does get there. It's just also 
like like you just said, like the, he's an amalgam of two different kinds of characters that we already pretty much know. You'd have to do a lot of work in order to make a this guy into a guy. Yeah. Let's talk about that naming convention, though. These are all kind of like three named characters that don't trip off the tongue, that feel like it feels I mean, I'm not going to say it feels like it because Morrison has been on the record saying this is literally what they were trying to do. They were trying to make names that sounded like they were literally translated from Mandarin. And it feels like someone making like an easy Mandarin to English translation joke. Like, isn't it funny how words sound different when you translate them? Yeah. You know, I would have really liked there's this thing that I sometimes crops up in the the intersections of pop culture on the internet where you learn that pop star somewhere in China has a nickname that's like the letter, you know, the number eight three times because the characters they use in the transliteration of their name. Yeah. I would have, that's like how the translation of like Chinese slang and spoken language actually exists in the world. Yeah. I, I feel like they could have pushed it a little farther, right? There is actually something really unique about the way that written and spoken Chinese gets translated into English. But the way that it's here, it's like the funniness is the failure of them to translate it into English and not the way that we can't understand that. Uh, Those kinds of like puns and character jokes are a big part of names used in Jin Luen Yang's new Superman, uh, which uh, features a bunch of Chinese heroes actually written by an Asian person, which is probably the difference here. Yeah. I think in between this and now, like the whole own stories sort of movement yeah, took over yeah. young adult fiction. And it le- oh, there's a lot of the, the definition between young adult fiction and comic books is extremely porous. I'm discovering like there's some crossover between people that get tapped to write a book or two and people who write young adult fiction. So you can see how that conversation made it into comic books as well. And it's just such a huge difference in the quality of the characters. Like just. They're just interesting, you know? Like, I haven't even given Socialist Red Guardsman a number because it's like, what's the point? (laughs) It's a five. (laughs) Yeah. He's just Um, like, he's got a good name, but everything else about him, like, that's not China. That's a white person's idea of what China is. Before I get to Brian Cronin, I do want to say that this wouldn't be the last time Morrison would play with those sort of translation jokes. One of my favorite moments in the Green Lantern. Brian, do you remember this? What uh, Morrison did there? Oh, yeah. Where uh, we hear a, a universal translator starting to uh, malfunction. And it starts uh, appending the suffix lad and last to superhero <laughs> names. Kind of uh, giving you the idea that that's where that affectation for the Legion of Superheroes came from. That's really cute. That's really adorable. See, yeah. That's – that's good, Morris. They get the juice. They just need to, someone to get their engine running a little bit more. They can't stop on their first What's idea. What's great there is that they're playing with fake cultures, not real cultures. Yep. But they're thinking, again, thinking about how translation works in the real world mm-hmm. and applying it to something that's not real. Language. Like, here, like, this, a lot of this issue is about trying to add superhero conflicts on top of the real world conflict. Yes. And it's, like, as we'll keep discussing, like, there are some cool things that come out of it. Like, everybody thinks Black Adam in this series is cool. They just, it, he has got some cool moments where he rips some people in half. Yeah. And I'm not immune, you know? But anytime Black Adam's not on screen, everyone needs to be asking, where's Black where's Adam? Black Adam, yeah. Here, I don't know, last night, my convinced my now husband to show me 
just any episode of Star Trek Enterprise that he thought was interesting at all. And then we watched another episode which had Padma Lakshmi in it because she's a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And we just had to turn it off halfway through because we were like, this is just very boring. This is it's like been a long way. George W. Bush <laughs> in space talking yeah. about the war on terror, but like in a really boring way. And this is what that this issue reminds me of a yeah. little bit. It's a lot of people talking about airspace. <laughs> It says a lot about Star Trek Enterprise that it was originally just called Enterprise, like it was embarrassed to be a Star Trek show. It does. But it's so Trekky once you watch it. It's just yeah. the most boring version of Trek you could possibly think of. I'm just wondering, Morrison obviously created these characters. Do you think they wrote this issue? It's on this this story. These I pages. think they wrote these pages. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, it ties directly with John's Black Adam stuff, though, right? True. Yeah. yeah. And using Green Lantern. I'm just interested. How do these pages are written? It's interesting because there's also, there's a lot of Morrison stuff in this issue, right? right. Like there's also, we'll see T.O. Morrow. And that's totally Morrison. Yeah, that's totally Morrison. Yeah, and that's Absolutely. totally Morrison. There's a lot of stuff you can say definitively that's Morrison's stuff. I, I wonder, these pages, is this Morrison and John's, I have no idea how, to, how, how it's got to be a collab, a collab, like a co-byline between them, right? That yeah, here's like what it. I'm going to propose. This scene is actually dissected. We see the conflict where they all show up, and then later we see Black Adam show up. And I think the second part of it is probably where Johns comes in. I see, I see. So that's like a... One person got a pass on the, the, the early part of the scene and then the other person yeah, got a yeah. pass on the, uh, the later parts of the scene. That actually feels tonally consistent Right, as well. and there's a, there's a big scene about Tio Morrow that breaks these two sequences up as yeah, if they're right? two separate scenes featuring the same characters. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is another issue in which the Days of the Week convention kind of falls by the wayside where a lot of stuff happens on Monday. <laughs> I want to finish my game. What's your score for Socialist Red Guardsman, Brian? Uh, we'll give it three for the name. Three for the name. Uh, we next go. we have Immortal Man in Darkness. Oh my god, there's another one. <laughs> the name is a misnomer. Immortal Man in Darkness is very mortal. Uh, he's a pilot who's bonded to a parasitic alien aircraft, kind of like a reimagining of, say, a Black Hawk. Uh, but, like, every time he pilots it, he dies, and they pick another Immortal Man in Darkness to replace him. Uh, which is a cool concept. But not one we ever really see explored very much. At all. Nope. Uh, there's an anime about this exact concept. Yeah. Where it's about like a bunch of teenagers get a mech and they have to play a game. And uh, after they win what they think are virtual battles, they die immediately. And that, that manga is pretty cool. And that anime is pretty cool. But It's called Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> no, the unfortunate fact of, end of Evangelion is that Shinji has to live every time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's Bocarano. And I just don't see Morrison doing this idea better than that comic book, which is very depressing. <laughs> so, I, I don't think Morrison has to do it. You could give it to somebody else. I think yeah. you could get an interesting prestige one shot or miniseries out of this idea. Yeah, you know, that would be, I can see a version of it where each issue you get to know a different pilot and then they die. Yeah. And they die in interesting ways. Probably would be a fun read, like a six issue something or other. And it would just be called In Darkness. Marvel had, uh, years ago, had the Strike Force more, more cheery, uh, where on that same concept, it, the team, once they're given powers, they have them for X amount of time and before they die. So wow. throughout, the, throughout the series, characters are constantly being, re- you know, new characters coming in. Numbers. You know, okay, I'll, I'll give this one a six. I, I'm going higher too. I'll go four. 
Okay. Got it. Ten total. Uh, next, we got Thundermind. He's a Buddha guy. He's got Buddha powers. That's basically it. That is basically it. Yeah. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this come on. This is weird. This is a He's weird He's better guy. than Mother of Champions. That's okay. He is better than Mother of Champions. Okay, so he's is one. It's a one. <laughs> give him one, but it's just a caricature. It's just a caricature of the Buddha, which is yeah. really weird. <laughs> yeah. I'll go three. Three. That's fair. There are two who aren't named in this issue, the Seven Deadly Brothers, who I think is the only one I actually remember when I think about the Great Ten. Um, he can split himself into seven bodies. He's a kung fu movie star and uh, kind of uh, got a chip on his shoulder, egotist. Oh, well, that's like already a character. Yeah, you know? that, this, this is the one that feels the most like a character. That's like a guy, you know, yeah. and that's a guy where it's very easy for Americans to understand it. And it's also very easy for you, a non-Chinese person, to do the research necessary to yeah. understand what that life is like. So, yeah. I think you can tell a good story about an action movie star who's also a superhero. That's Johnny Cage from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Yeah, you know. I'll give it a six, just because... Six is lower than your score for uh, August, right? August on yeah. and Iron, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I'm just a... For we started the, high. I started, started high. high. That's, what, that's what it sounds like. It's a- yeah, I did. And I will say... I am just a fucking sucker for a guy in a cool suit of armor. And, like, that's part of it for me. All credit to J.G. Jones. That is a cool suit of armor. It is really cool looking. You know, the audio component does not show you. But if you have a phone in your hands, Google it. It looks sick. And that's what my score was based off of. Uh, Brian, what are you giving Seven Deadly Brothers? I'll go my six. That's my high. That's your six. I keep thinking you're about to say Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. (laughs) Nope. Our last member of the Great Ten is a 10 out of 10 from me, my favorite, Shaolin Robot. It's a Shaolin Robot. Okay. That's all you, you need know, to know. There you go. 10 out of 10. That's all I care about. That really rocks. It's Zenyatta, baby. More than one character from the Great <laughs> 10 end up in Overwatch. <laughs> because stereotypes are prolific. Oh, my God. Oh, Blizzard is such a company that is continually mining comic books for their ideas also. Yeah. Like the fucking Reaper, that's that's just a, a character. It's a version of Batman that many people have seen before. Yeah. I will say it's not traditional Batman, but that's a Batman. I know a Batman when I see one. Brian, what do you give Shaolin Robot? I'll give Shaolin Robot a six. I'll give it a six. Yeah, that's your high. Okay, he's our highest scorer. Congratulations, Shaolin Robot. You get the spinoff. One more thing I want to say about the Great Ten before we move on. They got their own spinoff series after this. That was supposed to go for 10 issues, but it was so unpopular that they canceled it after nine. It couldn't even go the full 10. I love that. It wasn't even worth finishing the last one. It's like, ah, nobody nobody cares. It's funny, looking at the Great 10 series, I didn't remember Art Germ did the art covers. Yeah, Stanley Lau did those. So that was- One of the greats. That's incredible. That was early him. Yeah, that was big. That was one of his big, first big DC projects. These covers honestly do look really good. It's just yeah. too bad they're for what they're for. Yeah. Recently, he drew a cover for Batman and Robin featuring White Rabbit, uh, which uh, just shows that all these years later, he's still drawing DC characters nobody cares about. <laughs> I wrote an article today specifically in honor of Grade 10. Yeah? <laughs> no kidding. Uh, about what I would call the the crossover inclusion quotient yes how much a character would have to be forced on a writer to use yeah 
And the Great Ten are definitely on that level. If you were not told, put Great Ten into your comic book, the Great Ten are not going to be appearing in your comic book. They're there because Morrison is there, basically. You know, I mean, really just think about any of these characters. I think if I were forced to, if I was a comic book writer at the time and we're like, we're pushing the Great Ten, we got to make this stick. I would be like, please give me the one that's a Kung Fu action hero. Because that's <laughs> like, yeah. then you can just do uh, like a buddy cops at issue in the middle of your series. And nobody's unhappy with that. Right. You can just do Richard Dragon. Everybody likes Richard Dragon. Yeah. Uh, there's so many of these, though. Like, if you're going to use the Buddhist stereotype, then you have to, like, know about Buddhism to use him, which is, like, a hard sell. That would be very nice. Like, a lot of these uh, are either stereotypes or they rely on a deep knowledge you already have of Chinese culture. Taking peyote in the Mojave Desert doesn't make you a Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) It's something that a lot of people need to hear. All right. Well... They get in a big fight with Hal Jordan and John Stewart. Uh, we get a quick mention of the super young team, which is Grant Morrison's team of all Japanese heroes who's going to show up in Final Crisis. Right? Same naming <laughs> convention, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, at least with the super young team, I mean, it's all bad and gross and racist, right? Like, it, it doesn't work. But there was just more information about what Japan is like that is not super orientalist. So you end up with a couple of characters that come off okay. But this one, it's just it's just big mess. And there's not a lot you can do to save it. <laughs> now, my theory about why the Green Lanterns are used here is because, especially starting with uh, the Bronze Age, uh, the Green Lanterns are the heroes who are most concerned with the concept of jurisdiction, who, yeah. like, operates in what borders. And uh, that's kind of the concept we're dealing with here, with the, like, fractured nationalization of superheroism. So that's kind of what Hal is here to represent from a story level, I think. He's like a militarized police force, right? Yeah. You know, they're space cops. So if we're talking about- We can all agree the, spa- the the Green Lanterns are space cops, yeah. Yeah, if we're talking about airspace, which we soon will be, then they're the ones that would actually care about that. Enough about that, though. We'll get back to that in a bit. Right now, we are at The Haven, one of our favorite locales in 52, uh, which is the rest home for exhausted mad scientists that we haven't seen since and I would really love us to return to. Uh, Will Magnus is having his monthly meeting with Tio Morrow. Morrow is cracking an egg, uh, some visual foreshadowing to where the storyline will eventually go. Morrow is lamenting that they're taking away his privileges after he turned an iPod into a death ray. Just some really great scene-chewing dialogue here. This is Morrison at their finest, really. Yeah. Great. Yeah. This is just just having fun plumbing the depths of the DC universe for something super weird. I also, that egg cracking panel, I want to just, they did a pullout of the egg cup and it's so adorable. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's got this little like molecule symbol on it. It's very sweet. If they made an egg cup like that, I would buy it immediately. I do want to say that credit where it's due, a lot of people were analyzing these books panel for panel, looking for clues to mysteries that did not exist. There were people in 2006 who looked at this panel and was like are they gonna do egg foo are they going to egg foo 
yeah, now it's not very subtle at all. And yeah. like, if you have not read DC before, you probably know, or not, if you have not read 52, 52 before, you probably do know it as the one where they do egg foo. Uh, yeah. Because it's just weird that they brought him out. It's not very subtle foreshadowing if you know it's coming. Like, the big shadow. But it's a character who hadn't been used in, like, decades, I believe. It's true. Was, yeah, Brian, when was the last time egg foo was used before 52? I, I think, as you say, it literally was. I think since Kaniger on Wonder Woman. I think it yeah. was that long. Oh my god it, it was oh sorry yeah. i mean i think giffen which is funny because giffen, I that's think giffen fair, yeah. did, did use it in ambush bug that's true but oh, that even then that was kind of giffen doing an ambush bug joke yeah. Yeah. yeah i know that's true but if you do know what's coming it's just a big egg-shaped shadow that they're talking to i did read a lot of interviews with giffen and wade and rucka and a couple with morrison and johns uh, about the making of 52 and giffen does take credit like putting egg foo in this was my idea i oh, there you go. In this comic so you can't blame egg foo on morrison that's giffen morrison is very proud of it though the mad yeah. scientist stuff is great because it's like morrison asking permission to be weird and like yeah yep you get to be weird now what i love about morrison with the scientists is that i think morrison at their best is often taking the crazy ideas and actively not cynical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what these embracing the oddity of these super, these super scientists in a positive, not making fun of them away, but while yeah. acknowledging they're weird, embracing that weirdness. And I think that's yeah. nice and positive and cool. And because he has to share the stage with so many other writers who were also like on his level, undeniably, they had to show restraint and yeah. how much of the weird could come through. They were like, they stopped at egg food. And they they did not push very much farther than that's Egg a significant Fu. place to stop for yeah, people who don't you know? know who Egg Fu is. Egg Fu was a very yellow peril Fu Manchu style supervillain who was a big Asian stereotype face with a curly mustache on a giant egg that Wonder Woman fought. One of the craziest things Robert Conagher came up with, which is saying a lot that 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 guy. He did like 20 years on Wonder Woman, and it's uh, it's all a fever dream. Giffen kind of brings it up in Ambush Bug, as Brian said, is one of those wacky things DC did during the Wild West period of the Silver Age. And here he is again in this storyline about a bunch of tiny superheroes. If you want to do it that way, okay, I guess. Go for it. Uh, you got a grant. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's just that it's just that he's a big egg. <laughs> he's a big <laughs> egg. It's just that he's a big egg. If this was not in conjunction with the Great Ten, yeah. it would come off so much better, yeah. right? Because the absurdity of it, he's a he's a fucking egg. He's yeah, an egg but with a like, mustache. When you take the context, the egg was originally presented yeah. in of being like it's literally a pun on egg foo young. It's yeah. it's not good. It's not good. Egg Fu Manchu, yeah. Yeah, it's, Egg Fu Manchu, like, yeah. They to in comparison to the Great Ten, this seems easy peasy though. <laughs> like it's, it's just uh I'm glad that he no longer has a prehensile mustache. That's yeah, that, pretty that great. Be, Giffen says he fought for the prehensile mustache. Giffen, you were wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh man, this is the first episode we're recording since we lost Keith. But uh, yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> all respect, but you were wrong about it. Glad you lost that fight. Rest in peace, up in heaven with my boys. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Tio Maro says, "Hey, you were right about uh, mad scientists disappearing." Uh, let's look into this. Something weird is happening behind the scenes. Uh, there's another mention of the storyline we only got like a sentence of in the last issue. 
that uh, Lex Luthor has kind of cracked the metahuman genome project and has uh, figured out some way to give regular people superpowers. Uh, we're going to see more of that in the coming issues. Yeah. And then uh, there's a – in the background, a camera is being installed, which mm-hmm. gives a direct feed from this location to to Egg Foo's secret base. Is uh, That's where the egg-shaped shadow is is lurking from. Yeah, th- this is where we first see that, like, that ovular silhouette of <laughs> someone at the Great Wall talking to some person sitting in a big Dr. Evil chair, it seems, at least. The guy installing it, it seems like Bennett didn't finish drawing that guy's face. No, he did not. <laughs> He's like, the question wasn't in this scene. Yeah, it yeah, it certainly looks like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really rough schedule, you know, being yeah. on a weekly book. <laughs> yeah, putting putting out a book a week is hard. Boy. Yeah. So people called it. All all credit to them that they were able to do that. I guess they saw Giffen's name on and put the dots together. From there we go back to what we are proposing is the John's half of the Great Ten story. Uh back at the Great Wall, Black Adam shows up in the middle of the big fight in Pulse Rank. Wow, you're f- it's, it's it's such a good observation now looking at it. No interesting weird dialogue from the Great Ten anymore, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. You put that's I mean, I absolutely you, you true. The I perspective didn't... shifts to Hal and John who yeah. Jeff are already is already writing in Green Lantern. Interesting. This is when it becomes a John scene. Interesting. And you'll notice also the panel layout for the first part of the scene was very, very normal, probably to give more space to these uh, the huge amount of characters. It was uh, six panels, so six panel grid. And here, there's a little bit more visual interest because it's mostly just these two characters we already know talking. Right. So yeah. a little bit more to draw your eye around the, the, the scene because you're not focusing on these new characters you haven't seen before, uh, which works really, really well, I think. Because it leads right into this scene with the Black Adam, where and Black Adam does more cool stuff that's going to make The Rock go completely insane for 10 years. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, he shows up with the Rocket Reds, tries to go like, hey, you're out of your jurisdiction. I'm forming a coalition of non-American superheroes from the scary nations that George Bush is afraid of. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It's the super axis of evil. <laughs> so upsetting yeah but it's like this is also i think the the bad vision like of the bad like when when you hear a gamer say i don't like it when they put politics in my games uh this is what they i what optimistically i think they mean uh which is i don't like it when writers who have a bad grasp on like international geopolitics try to write a political struggle but then also mostly just do it by like just having the characters talk about how they can't do something because of politics that's all that's happening here cut to 2020 jeff johns is still telling this exact same story with the exact same characters this is what the non-watchmen part of Doomsday Clock is about. That is so, so fascinating. Like, it's a style of storytelling that I think is, like, endemic to comic books and other nerd media, where in their effort to tell a story about how these things can have real-world consequences, they don't think about, like, people. They think right. about, like, a government makes laws, and you gotta do the laws, or else the government's mad. And, like, that's <laughs> just, like, not compelling storytelling. What makes Watchmen good is that there is just a world going on with a history and laws, yeah. but we're mostly zeroed in on a few couple of people and how they are affected 
by this world. And I wish there was more, like, I wish I could see how the Great Ten solve crimes in various villages and towns and cities in China. I would love to see that. You gotta read New Superman, Gita. Yeah. Okay. You've convinced me. I got the first issue and I really liked it, so now I'm buying another comic book. Here I am. Man, (laughs) you guys read Doomsday Clock, right? I did not read it. (laughs) I was too scared. Brian Cronin, what are your thoughts on Doomsday Clock as a political text? Oh, jeez. That's uh, not much. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's very fair. Maybe it wanted to be. What do you think about Doomsday Clock as an evolution of 52? So it's dealing with these uh, international politics. Oh, it's gotcha, dealing right. with uh, Black Adam at a different point in his story. I mean, it has great ten. It, it does have the great ten in it in a small role. Wild, okay, isn't that amazing? They're the great twenty now. Oh, right. oh boy, yeah, <laughs> China big. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> what Jeff Johns did is he looked at what Gene was doing in su- in New Superman and just grabbed the Justice League of China and said, there, they're the Great 20 now. Done. God, it's interesting to me that after this project, which to me, I think I can draw a lot of direct lines between this project and how DC would manage their broader universe in extra comic book media and like TV and, and movies, etc., but also, it's like interesting how this in particular keeps guiding Johns towards the Watchmen universe and the works of Alan Moore. It's like, since here, he's been in a sort of funnel where he just cannot do anything without thinking about Watchmen for whatever reason. Finally, I think an hour into this podcast, we get to day two of the week. Uh, <laughs> we're on Monday right now. Uh, we're... Booster and Skeets have figured out where Rip Hunter is, a thing they had kind of lost the trail of a couple weeks ago. Uh, Something is wrong with time, and Booster needs to figure out what it is. Uh, The bunker is set to automatically open on midnight, January 1st, 52 BC. Another reference to this uh, recurring Lost-style number. Uh, but because Skeets is a descendant of the cord tech technology that was used to make this lock, he's able to open it up easily, which feels like a misunderstanding of how technology works, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure at Coric Tech, they made sure every single device down to their door locks were backwards compatible with each yeah, other. That, that's why my PS5 can play the original Crash Bandicoot without any Wouldn't problems. that be great? Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, so we go from that, those couple of, that one page where Booster is descending down the staircase, bantering with skeets all the time, into this two-page spread that completely blew my mind when I first saw it. <laughs> oh, baby, here we go. Oh, my God, this two-page spread. The first time I saw this, I I analyzed this page for hours. I mean, we there's all so much did, going Gita. on. <laughs> it's so we good. Spent our, we spent the entire week after the issue came out on this page, yeah. and it's what I invited Brian Cronin on this show to talk about. Here we fucking are. Here we fucking go. So before we go into the little tiny references, that may or may not give us some foreshadowing into what happens here. I wanted to point out some of the pictures of history that are on the wall. Yeah. Very interesting choices here. I'm just going to say it. This is where the blackboard shows up. Yes. This is where our segment, the blackboard, at the end of every episode is named after. And it's a recurring motif we'll see throughout DC Comics from here on to even the present day. 
It yep. just happened in Flashpoint Beyond, which was a, a recent crossover event story of Jeff Johns returning to his Flashpoint story of like this blackboard that's filled with these hints and cryptic references to things that may or may not be going on throughout the present and future of the DC universe. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about those portraits. Yeah, so these are just weird, weird choices. Yeah. We've got uh, Rosa Parks arrested, and then below yeah. her, Abe Lincoln and General Sherman from the from the war, from Civil War. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the Spanish Inquisition, and then uh, Elvis, Elvis, of course. And then I think some Mayans building uh, a pyramid. I think that's the Boston Tea Party. That's Boston Tea Party. Oh, that's yeah. the Boston Tea Party, and then a dinosaur. And then a dinosaur. I assume it's a robot dinosaur, I assume. Uh, naturally, of course. All of these are from, like, a history book except Batman's dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> that should be in the history book. Come on. Yeah, there are a bunch of clocks everywhere that in the script were meant to be set to, like, eight minutes to midnight. So they're, like, at 52 of the hour. Oh, Get it? oh boy. Yeah. Oh, brother. But other than that, there are a bunch of papers scattered all over the floor, and they're readable, which is on purpose, of course. So they want people to read they, and pour They over want these. you to be analyzing this. All of this was written, turns out, by Stephen Wacker, the editor of 52 oh, at the time. Oh, okay. So uh, a lot of the references you'll see here to different books that are not 52 were books that Stephen Wacker specifically was working on. Fascinating. Uh, do you do we want to go through it piece by piece? Hey, well, there's a couple of things that stand out, and I know. Yeah, I wanna, tell me what stands out to you first. I want to. So these were the ones that I was thinking about when I first read this. As like, ooh, I wonder where that's going to lead to. Let's enhance. Let's see. Let's enhance. God, <laughs> I think time masters and time servants was something I was thinking about. Also, yeah, that's nothing. Find the last quote marks e l was also something I was thinking about at the time. I think that's a reference to Chris. Uh, yes. The, uh, yeah, that's that's a reference to the adopted son that Superman and Lois would be taking in in Superman, in Jeff John Superman. Which would be John, so yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Um, don't ask the question, it lies. I know I talked about that a lot on LiveJournal. Oh, yeah, well, we know that Vic Sage is keeping a secret from Renee. Yeah, we do. One that just like is fr in front of my eyes when I open the page every time, even though I don't think this led into anything interesting at all, was Immortal Savage with the I-M crossed out so it reads Mortal Savage. Now that is what's going on in Gail Simone's Secret Six. Daniel oh. Savage is running out of immortality juice. He needs his daughter to produce an heir. The problem is she's a lesbian. <laughs> That's too bad for him, I guess. Yeah. Oh, man. I I bet he just is okay with that and doesn't do anything at all. Uh, you'd be surprised. What? <laughs> at the same time, I think Stuart Moore, wasn't he? Stuart Moore also had a JSA classified Vandal Savage arc at that exact time. Yeah, that might have been true as well. But we see a yeah. few other references to Secret Six. Secret Six. The, like there's an arrow from that to Secret Five. Right. Which is kind of an in-joke to the fact that throughout all of Secret Six, there's never really six, six members of the team. Right. There's always one less or one more. We got a lot of stuff. Uh, we got TE versus AU plus PB. This one took me a long time to figure out. 
Uh, but AU and PB is a reference to gold and lead, so it's talking yeah. about the metal men. TE, I didn't know what like tellurium had to do with anything until I realized it's element 52 on the periodic table. Waka waka. There you go. That, that's all it is. On this blackboard, there's also the number 52 everywhere circled. In a circled, tiny circle. yeah. It's circled everywhere, and uh, they're all kind of leading towards big circle marked Earth, which is the actual thing 52 is about. That there are 52 Earths, which is a thing we'll get into much, much later. It's very subtle uh, foreshadowing, I thought. Yeah, off the map, there's a globe marked World War Three, which is going to be the big event that attempts to fix all the things they overlooked on their mission statement. Yeah. 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 <laughs> every every page is, hey, fix this one. Next page, fix this yeah, one. Yeah, this one, this one, this one. Yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. Let's see. We got Time is Broken. Uh, we got uh, number 52. We got 520 Kane Street, which was the address that Vic showed Renee at the beginning of their storyline. Uh, we got uh, Further Time is Different, which I believe is meant to be an acknowledgement of Mark Wade's hyper time and what he was doing at the time in Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes. Makes sense. Uh, there's The Four Horsemen Will End Her Reign. That's a pretty obvious in retrospect reference to where the Black Adam story is headed at its big climax. I don't know what he won't smell it means. That's Ralph. Yeah. Oh, that's Ralph. Yes. He's got a nose for crime. Because of the nose. Thank you. Yes. We see Sonic Disruptors crossed Which out. Is just that's a, a joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's just a joke. It's a reference well, that's what's to. That's interesting. You mentioned that Wacker did these. I didn't know that. That makes yeah. a lot more sense as to why so many of these are just jokes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sonic Disruptors is a miniseries Mike Barron did in the 80s that he lost interest in halfway through. And it just. Awesome, right? Great 10. See, tie yeah. into series that never got to the last issue. Exactly. There it's, we go. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the bad end of what happens in 52 when these writers are kind of flying by the seat of their pants if they're not able to figure it out at the very end. Uh, so, like, if they weren't the masters they were, this could have ended up very easily like Sonic Disruptors. Uh, I don't know what I'm not kryptonite is. Maybe that's a quote in Superman going on at the same time. There's The Reach, which uh, repeated over and over, and The Scarab is Eternal, which is a reference to the stuff going on in the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle series, probably the best one year later comic. Yeah, absolutely. S- still like that movie. Still that a big fan of that movie. still good, honestly. Yeah. I think of it fondly as in terms of there's got to be room for like just normal popcorn flicks in the world. I love a good popcorn flick. Indiana Jones is a classic for that reason. You can watch that movie any time of day, no matter what mood you're in. And it just runs like a little machine and you've had a good time. And, yeah. you know, Blue Beetle's a lot like that. You, it's not the deepest movie and it's not perfect, but you, you could put it on and just have a really nice time doing your laundry. And that's what movies are for. George Lopez is hilarious in it. It's the best role George Lopez has ever done in his life. He's so funny in it as like, he's like a paranoid, like left wing uncle, which is something I'm familiar with. Uh, There's a moment where he describes Ted Kord as Batman with ADHD. And it's. (laughs) I felt really seen. Yeah. Oh, God. It Hurts to Breathe is probably a question reference. The tornado is in pieces. Yeah, that's, uh, we saw Red Tornado. Uh, Where is the curry air is a reference to what Kurt Busiek is doing at the time on uh, Aquaman with Arthur Joseph Curry, a plot that kind of got lost. (laughs) Brian, what do you remember about Arthur Joseph Curry? Can you explain that to me? Man, it went nowhere. (laughs) What's funny is I think Arthur Arthur Joseph Curry was going to be in Outsiders when Zadar got, and that that 
That didn't happen. <laughs> no, it did not. We had a character that existed for no reason and no yeah. one had any interest in using him. Who is Supernova will become relevant very soon. Uh, Man of Steel, probably a reference to Steel's literal transformation into like a steel guy. Yep. What happened to the son of Superman? That's another Chris Kent illusion. Uh, where is the Batman? We'll find out. Who is the Batwoman? We'll find out. Who is Diana Prince? Now, this is a reference to the like Jodie Picoult story yes. coming up. I remember this and yeah. I remember the hype for this also building at the time at the same live journal communities because I remember people just wanting desperately like a really, really good Wonder Woman book and being interested. It was Heinberg, right? Oh, it was Heinberg, but then Jodie Picoult did like a five issue guest spot that was really, yeah. really hyped yeah. up at the time. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, it, yeah, I agree, yeah. but it's just weird that, right? Because she didn't join until later, right? Like issue six. Yeah. They were like buying time for her. Oh, really? Even now, though, they 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 stylize uh, the trade paperbacks in the style of her, oh, her novels now. Yeah. yeah. They really, really wanted the brand recognition, and she just doesn't have like a superhero story in her. She just doesn't. She's, yeah. She writes the kinds of novels she writes. An attempt was made. Uh, let's see. Uh, we got Mortal Savage. Uh, someone is monitoring. They see us. They see me. I think this is straight up a reference to Grant Morrison's Animal Man right here. Yeah. And the monitors who are coming up in Countdown and Final Crisis, which yeah. they're already starting to think about because comics move at a glacial pace. Do you remember the what the Lazarus Pit Rises was a reference to? I believe this is about uh, the resurrection of Ra's al Ghul plotline coming That's up. That's what I thought. The yeah, big I'm, crossover that Morrison had to get all, It's in. all slotting together into my head where I was when this was With happening. With the white ghost and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Gosh. Let's see. There's Chimera Lives Again. Uh, Chimera is the main villain of Walt Simonson and Howard Chaikin's Hot Girl run, which was happening at the same time as this, uh, where in every single panel, Hot Girl has like really prominent nipples poking out of her shirt for some reason. <laughs> it's very distracting. <laughs> the main the main villain, I think Chimera, when she shows up, looks like a big vagina. It's oh, it's uh Wow. I, yeah. I just don't think that that's a book that can sustain that imagery. You know, no. if you went Bloodborne with it, that would be one thing. But this is a superhero Well, book. the idea was that it's not Hawkman, it's Hawk Girl. So oh, that's what you, we have to talk about. You know what girls are? <laughs> big vaginas. Yeah, vaginas and tits. That's what girls are. That's what girls are. Oh, God. It is weird how much this is all just advertising current DC books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the time... I thought this was all so important to this series. Right, right, right. But it's really just, what else am I I didn't know Wacker was writing this. Yeah. Had I known Wacker was writing it, then I, I would be a little bit less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It all kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? Because, like, some of them do reference 52, yeah. right? There's a 520 cane uh, flyer on the ground. Supernova. Yeah, you know, the tornado is in pieces, something that already happened in the book. Some of these, and some of these things do reference future events, like, who is Supernova? We are about to find out next week and that will become a defining question of this arc for booster mm -hmm. but some of them just don't have anything to do with 52 at all well i think that speaks to like when you see all this stuff on like a mystery solving cork board some clues are relevant some clues aren't yeah so the red herrings are there for a narrative reason the old gods are dead the new gods want what's left that's a vague sketch of what will become death of the new gods a story everybody loved and totally made sense I'm supposed to be dead, I think, is about 
time travelers dying off in this story. When am I? Others? Uh, more about that. Uh, a reference to Infinity Inc., which we'll see show up. A reference to Casey the Cop, which is nothing. Uh, Casey the Cop is like an old uh, like gag strip from the Golden Age by Henry Boltonoff. Oh, Kind of like cute. the deepest cut reference he could pull. Uh, Silver Blade is similar. Uh, 1987 series. Banner's Galaxy, just a reference. Yeah, Who's yeah. Who. Sun Devils is just a reference. Yeah, Jurgens yeah, yeah. at least drew the backup story, so there's some connection. Now, I did read from Mark Wade. He did say, despite his best intentions, he meant to get around to 2,000 years from now and what is Spanner's Galaxy, uh, oh. which are uh, Spanner's Galaxy being a six-issue miniseries from 1984. Ah. Those were meant to show up in his Legion of Superheroes run, but he never ah, got around okay. to it. Yeah. Interesting. So That's there interesting. were so some of those were something. He also points out that one thing nobody noticed in this scene is the time pool magnet from the atom is in this scene if you look for it closely. I believe you. I believe you. Yeah. I'm not gonna look. Yeah, for there it. it is, right there. You see it hanging on the tripod in the bottom right. That's oh, the yep, magnet yep. from the Adam's time pool. Oh yeah. yeah. Huh. There you go. From the Chrono stuff, and then we turn one more page. And we see a lot of insane "the cake is a lie" style script uh, saying it that is it's the cake all- is a lie style. <laughs> yeah, it really oh, is. Oh boy, this uh, you know it's surprising that we don't see a skeleton on the floor with their arm pointing out to something important that Booster has to look at. It's yeah. Environmental storytelling. Uh, well, it's all apparently pointing pointing to Booster, or rather, a magazine cover uh, that Booster appears on, but. Maybe, but we know better later. But we know better, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's 52, this issue. B- Booster seems to think everything's fucked up, Rip Hunter's gone crazy, and for some reason it's all his fault. And that's where we leave week six of 52. That's clever. By the way, that arrow bit, that's clever. Yeah, yeah. that was really good. Yeah, that was good. I've always complained about, there's a bit in Shawshank Redemption Yeah, mm-hmm. where he changes his shoes Mm-hmm. And he's wearing the warden shoes to the cell. Yeah. And he later says, it makes sense. No one ever pays attention to your shoes. However, in the scene, his shoes are not on screen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Here, they play fair. The arrow yeah. is, we, uh, that is good. When they actually play fair with You're, them, you're right. Yes. If you go back and you see what the arrows are pointing, you're like, oh, yeah. Okay. You know what? The, they did tell us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this scene plays they, by the rules. The clue is there. My my go-to example of like a mystery story that doesn't actually deliver on the promise of a mystery, which is that you will be able to look back at the clues and like, you know, it's not like BBC Sherlock in that way, <laughs> where it gives you a bunch of red herrings, but no actual clues. Or right. Identity Crisis, if we're going just a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah. no, Identity Crisis is another great example. I read Identity Crisis because it was the book at the time. I was a teenager, right? You know, mm-hmm. and it was as a young person, and if you're femme, it's like hard to get people to give you really good advice on comics because you just end up with the taste of someone that's maybe hitting on you a little bit being imposed on you. So I read Identity Crisis just because I wanted to know what was happening. And it made me so, I mean, I read it and was like, oh, whatever. And then I went back to it like a year later and the whole storytelling level on it, it just makes me so frustrated because it's, A lot of old people who have had great lives, and you just go back and you make it horrible. (laughs) You make them have a horrible time. I mean, the one thing I always say in defense of Identity Crisis, not a lot of people really cared about Ralph and Sue Dibney before he made you care about Ralph and Sue Dibney and then immediately tortured That is actually fair. My defense would be, 
you pretty much gave him a list. These are the characters you can kill off or whatever. Right. So. Uh, unless you're Mark Wade. Mark Wade was the only person severely traumatized by that. <laughs> yeah. He was a body one. It's a loss. Yeah. yeah, you know, and the ending is really traumatizing. I, honestly, it's mm-hmm. just like, and everything sucked at the end, the end. Yeah. But like, it is true that having that happen to Ralph does lead into this excellent story and send off to the character in 52. Yeah. Did make me for the first time ever be like, so what? Who was who was Ralph Dibney? What yeah. was he all about? You know? I wouldn't have gone back and read all the Silver Age detective comic stories with Elongated Man if uh, Brad Meltzer didn't torture him in identity crisis so maybe he did the right thing you know who can say it's who been can done. say really whomst among us yeah i want to tell you something alex that is uh might not be true by the time that this ep- issue this episode i keep calling the episodes of our podcast issues why don't we just do that Let's it's just better do that. It's better a little bit. Yeah, but uh, I went to a, a used bookstore in New York called Sweet Pickle Books, mm-hmm. and they had a little tiny section for comic books, and somebody offloaded the first 12 issues of the Denny O'Neill Question series there. Oh, wow. It's just, what a wonderful thing to see out in the wild. Somebody yeah. really liked those books, but I think they kept the first issue for themselves, which I also respect. Yes. Uh, the, the second volume of the question by Denny O'Neill Omnibus comes out November 21st. I already have my copy pre-ordered. It's probably out by the time you hear this for several months um, I, because we are building a very big backlog. I'm going to say even not having it yet that I loved it. It was great. It was perfect. No notes. Uh, <laughs> the question's my favorite guy. He's he's my little blorbo. He's my glup shido. Yeah. And this, I mean, 52 is another, like, yeah. I mean, the question had the benefit of having a lot of good writers for a long time, but 52 really made people, like, give a shit about those old stories also. Yeah, yeah. Go, going from Steve Ditko to Denny O'Neill to Greg Rucka. Um, yeah, you're, strength you're, to yeah. strength. Yeah, pretty good. Little little Rick Vage pit stop, which I wouldn't mention if Brian Cronin wasn't here to correct me. Uh, yes, I know Rick Vage was there. I'm aware of Rick Vage's work. Uh- Brian, I have a question for you before we start into the back matter of this podcast episode. But do you remember any wild theories you had about 52 that ended up being incorrect? Yes, or please. Are those lost to the sands of time? That's a great question, and no. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I know I wanted so many other things to be important. I wanted the Lazarus pit thing to be important so badly. Uh, right. It's just not, though. It's just no. not. It's actually a reference to the weakest part of that Morrison run. Yep. What's funny, actually, thinking about it, uh, looking back now of this chalkboard, so what are we going to say? Uh, 10% actually mattered of, of the things on here? Oh, I think 20 or 30%. 20 or 30, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Only a few of the things actually never came into fruition. Off the top of your head, Alex, do you recall when Johns then did Booster Gold and did like multiple chalkboards? Yes, he did multiple chalkboards. And they were more important? They actually tied in better? I'm I think so because they were all specifically referencing things that Jeff Johns himself was working on. Well, there you go. Yeah, okay. there you yeah. go. Yeah. The one in uh, Flashpoint Beyond is clearly about all the stuff that Right. Johns himself had planned between his new Golden Age launch and other stuff going on, uh, which is all kind of been waylaid now that Jeff is going on to start his own company. So good luck to everybody who wanted to follow that story. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Wacker, I guess I should give a quick shout out to Wacker then, I guess. Yeah. One of the big things that we saw compared to this and other ones 
The other ones didn't have Wacker. That's true. That might be the secret sauce, because Wacker left halfway through 52. He was poached by Marvel. Right. But by then, they probably had the juice to finish right. the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. So he might have been that secret sauce. Yeah. Because Countdown did not have Wacker. No. And Trinity did, did not have Wacker. And it missed Wacker, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You can feel it. You can feel that the 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 combination of elements has kind of not it's soured a little bit here. They talk about television style writing so much in interviews and how much TV inspired them. But another thing about television is that the writers' rooms are a lot bigger and they're That's they true. They try to be, there is like one person that is try or one or a couple of people, a, a showrunner and a couple of producers who have like a binder and are keeping everything on track. And that is something they definitely didn't have. So losing just one person can definitely make as huge of a difference as the one between 52 and Countdown. Because everyone has tried to replicate this. and It's never worked. Yeah. I can't think of a book that worked this well, even with all the stuff that they changed their minds on and they, the promises they made and didn't fulfill, it gets, <laughs> it lands enough of its called shots that it feels like such a success when you get to the end of it. I will stand up for Kurt Busiek's Trinity. I think Trinity gets a bad rap. You have to consider the fact that it was basically one guy writing the whole thing, and it was just a very heavy burden to bear on your own, and for what it was, it was pretty good, but it doesn't stand up to 52, because nothing does. Yeah, yeah. In ambition. Yeah, Trinity, that's fine. Trinity was fine, you're right. Yeah, Trinity I also, fine. I don't even think, like, doing this, like, a real writer's room and having a, a, a group of 10 to 12 people would make the book better. I think it had to be these four people exactly, in this tight yes. group. You know, it's, I think you could do it, but you'd just be making a television show. <laughs> you wouldn't be making a comic. <laughs> uh, Jeff did tell me when I spoke to him that uh, what probably might have made it better would be if they were able to talk over Zoom, which is what they would have done if oh, they were man. making this today instead of back when they had to rely on telephones. Point. Oh, man. That probably would have sped up the process a little bit, at least. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. All right. Let's get into the history of the DC Universe. Uh, issues 2 through 11 of 52 all end with this uh, backup of Donna Troy kind of replacing Harbinger in the cosmic firmament as the keeper of DC lore, which will very quickly become irrelevant as the next <laughs> crisis happens. Brian, I saw you shaking your head. Are you not into this backup feature? Well, Alex explained perfectly the idea of <laughs> codifying something that's going to last a month. For <laughs> right. <laughs> that's really true. That probably was known at the time this was being written, too, that, like, you're describing a DC universe that's only going to be relevant until the end of 52, basically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is your story for one year. You know... Uh, we had one issue that covered the entirety of the Golden and Silver Age. Then we had two issues just covering Crisis on Infinite Earths. Now, this issue is covering literally everything that happens in DC Comics from 1986 <laughs> to 1994. Uh, maybe my favorite era of DC history. Yeah. I, I might say that. Yeah. Brian Cronin, what's your favorite period of DC history? Uh, no, you. this is, wow, this is a really great period, 86 to, I, I mean, I would go probably not 94-ish, but it, it definitely, that eight, late 80s period was when they brought over, Yeah, they ha had so many of these guys they were bringing in, like Oshender, and it, that, come on, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, peak, peak writers letting loose on the books. 
This is when Doom Patrol takes off. This is when Animal Man takes yeah. off. This is yes. when The Question and The Sandman, all the all the heavy, yeah. heavy hitters we're still talking about. This to me is like a very foundational time for me in my comic book reading history where yeah. I just kind of went through a list of books from this time and just read them all because yeah. I knew that they were supposed to be the best of the best. You know, at the time I was like, it was the, you know, 2000s or so. So it wasn't that long ago <laughs> either right, for right, me. Right. But it felt a little bit less mythological, a little bit more tangible. Back when we were on that Jeanette Con shit. Back when we were smoking that Jeanette Con pack, right? It, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God. That, that Karen Burger Kush. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh now, man, the art—the art's really good on these pages. That's oh, the art is. Uh, let Let's talk talent. Uh, Andy Lanning taking over inking from Norm Rapman, going over Dan Jurgens's pencils. Uh, Jurgens writing and drawing here, which makes sense since he was basically here for this whole period. Jurgens sums up some of the big events from this era, like the founding of the Justice League International, Checkmate, Suicide Squad, Booster Gold. Uh, Jason Todd dies. Batgirl becomes Oracle. Tim Drake becomes Robin. Uh, we skirt through Millennium, which was that event with where DC did Secret Invasion like 30 years before Secret Invasion. They, they did Invasion, which has nothing to do with Secret Invasion. It was the one with the other kind of yellow peril aliens with like the big <laughs> Japan dots on their forehead and yellow skin and sharp teeth. What a horrible character design also. Yeah. Just like nasty and with all the little teeth must have taken a really long time to draw. Dan Jurgens for some reason takes some space here to shout out the Team Titans, the like most <laughs> obscure version of the team. What do you remember about the Team Titans, Brian? Well, the Team Titans, that was a part of also the peak of Imics, where yeah. the first issue of their comic book series had each one had an individual individualized story that would That's be right. unique to each issue. So if you wanted to get all their origins, you'd have to get five copies of the first issue. Which is what Steve Orlando would kind of later do on his Justice League of America run. True. Yeah. It's like a gotcha game, but for comic books, basically. It's like Genshin <laughs> More Impact. More or less, your, yeah. Your first issue. I mean, they had their names on the cover, so it wasn't like a blind box thing, Okay, but. okay. So it's a little bit better than a gotcha pull. Team Titans is also great that it came about, uh, I've, I've been meaning to write about it, this period where New Titans was caught, it had a, New Titans had a long, it was Titans Hunt. It was like yeah. a uh, like a two-year two story. But in the middle of that two-year story, they had a crossover with multiple summer crossovers. Oh, my God. <laughs> Armageddon 2001, where oh someone God. is going to be a villain and yeah. some modern DC hero is going to be a villain. And they, then they also have the War of the Gods. And these are in the middle of this Titans hunt crossover. And the team Titans are thrown in. They have to account for all this stuff. Yeah. Which is kind of the same thing that's going on in DC right now with everything having to account for Night Terrors and now Beast World. There's just like a lot of crossover interference still happening in these titles. Yeah. Uh, oh, one thing I want to talk about from Teen Titans. Remember they had their own Terra? It was like a Terra from a different timeline. Oh my God, yes. You know, it's interesting they bring her up because she will be in this story much later. The like weird time displaced second Terra, one of the very few 
like actual casualties of World War Three. I think two heroes literally die in World War Three. We gotta make sure we don't have to deal with that second Terra anymore, yeah, guys. Exactly. <laughs> it's her and like Frankenstein Jr., another character that like nobody cares about. These <laughs> characters also in Team Titans, I have to say, are a perfect relic of that mid to late 80s character design stuff. Everyone's got feathered hair. Yeah. Everyone's got the Duran Duran girl cheekbones where it's just like you could like <laughs> slice some a loaf of bread with them and then lots of people have deep v hairstyles like their deep widow's peaks and their hair goes straight up but i also love this bat guy who really just is a bat he's a man <laughs> bat <laughs> i love him oh man black condor gets a big spotlight too i don't know oh, oh, black true. condor baby yeah yeah, Black Condor breaks out. The Ray breaks out. Briefly. Just very briefly. And then sinks straight back down. And yeah. shockingly, they're all on Dan Jurgens' Justice League. Yeah. Oh. Go figure. What a coincidence. What a yeah. coincidence, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Superman dies. Batman, uh, Bane breaks Batman. Uh, the reign of the Superman. Hal Jordan turns evil, but we find out much later it was an alien worm in his head. So it's not his fault. Uh, Kyle Rayner shows up. <laughs> I'm always saying that. It's always the alien worm in my head. It you was know? The why worm. didn't I, why didn't I put my dishes away? There was an alien worm in my head and you can't blame me. <laughs> I haven't played Baldur's Gate 3, but I've kind of picked up by osmosis that that's what Baldur's Gate 3 is. Yeah, you got an alien worm in your head in that game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it, it's it's a parallax story. Exactly. Basically. It's parallax. Yeah, and then we get that ominous declaration that zero hour is coming, a totally and comprehensible parallax. event. Uh yeah. And that's where fifty two number six ends. We 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 did it. <laughs> we read the whole comic. I'm proud of us. What's your favorite part of this issue? Uh, Magnus. What do you want to Will shout Magnus. out? Will Magnus. Yeah. Will Magnus? Will Magnus, I think, does have a, a scene stealing scene mm -hmm. in this in this issue. I love all the Will Magnus parts. Tio Morrow kind of like grousing over turning an iPad into a death ray. <laughs> the idea of that. Yeah. That reminds me of I was just happening to see an episode of The Simpsons from this era, like the, maybe the exact year. And it's set in the future and iPods have become sentient. And it's so <laughs> amusing how iPods were yeah. seen as this very high-tech thing at one point in time. Yeah, yeah. It's just a hard drive, my guys. It's a hard drive <laughs> with an OS on it. Nothing yeah. to be worried about here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I guess my favorite scene is the blackboard scene because it broke my brain. Oh, right. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I okay. The first issue of this, uh, the first issue of this podcast, I forgot yes. that my favorite DC character is Lois Lane, which is famously true. I'm yeah. always talking about Lois Lane, and I was like, actually, I think it might be Tim Drake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm always nutso for Vic Sage. You're a Lois Lane person. Uh, who, who's your precious little Blorbo, Brian, in the DC universe? Um. Well. I like Ted Cord until they shot him in the head. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, it's true. Ted, it's just fun when he shows up, right? I think my boy Josh Trujillo is doing a pretty good job with him in Blue That's Beetle fair. right now. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. I'm He's so back. Glad. He got better. I'm they do often recover from being shot in the head, right? Yeah. You know, that's a normal thing. Nothing's fatal. As an aside, on that reminds me of why we talk about that great Ralph Dibney story. One thing I will say is, you know it's not the end, and that sort of... Exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of a downbeat, when you know that's not. However it ends is clearly not how it's actually going to end for those characters. And Although, yeah. like, not a lot has been done with Ralph Dibney since then. They showed up in Gail Simone's 
Secret Six Revival in New 52, and I think that's about it, other than, like, tiny, tiny cameos. I mean, the world is ready for a Thin Man-esque uh, Ralph Dibney ghost detective. Yeah, we're ready book. for Nick and uh, Nick and Nora Charles reboot. Absolutely. They literally are apparently doing a Nick and Nora Charles reboot. Oh, That's yeah. so, I mean, good. Good, good. I hope so. <laughs> who, who did they cast? Uh, I mean, again, th- these are things tentative. Who knows what will actually happen? Brad Pitt. Yeah. And I believe, who is the Brad? Brad Pitt. Isn't it and- Marco Robbie? I think it's Margot Robbie, yeah. I think she would be fantastic. Brad Pitt, I could give or take. But Margot Robbie would be, it has the right energy, right? She's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? Have you heard Paul F. Tompkins and Paget Brewster doing it on the Thrilling Adventure Hour podcast? Uh, It's so fucking good. That sounds adorable. No, but I can see see that easily, yeah. Just a perfect pitch note, Nick and Nora, except they're spirit mediums. It's great. Um, Yeah. Th- th- I recommend that. Go back and listen to Beyond Belief, an old podcast. Straight up, just get, watch yeah. The Thin Man also. That yeah, just watch The Thin Man. It's good. The movie's really good it is still. Very good. You know, it's the the perfect couple you want to invite to your to your party because they'll have a really weird story to tell. I love about The Thin Man how that became the franchise when The Thin Man's only in the first movie. Yeah, it's I like know. The Pink I love Panther. that too. <laughs> it's exactly like The Pink Panther. I you're guess right. we're just The Thin Man now? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he's a thin man. There you go. The video Works game out. series Halo got stuck in the same rut. Uh, they're like, uh, we blew up Halo in the first one. What do we do now? <laughs> well, there's more Halos. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So my favorite moment from this issue was not Mill Magnus. I wrote down just the idea of a super villain improv class. <laughs> it's just like such a funny bit i would love to see like an improv class that is all people that are definitely super villains when they're outside of that room but they're working on like projecting and you yes and i will flay the flesh from your bones yes exactly yes exactly (laughs) uh uh, yes that's very good do you want to go to the blackboard Sure. This is the segment where we pick a particular scene or concept in the issue and talk about it in relation to something else that DC had been doing in the past, present, or future from this point, which is basically what we've been we have been doing this entire episode, uh, this entire issue, as we're calling them now. Yeah, it's an <laughs> eternally recursive blackboard for yeah. this particular episode of the pod. Yeah. Where do you where do you want to go with this? So for me. I want to talk, just briefly mention the way that Rip Hunter is portrayed in Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. We haven't seen Rip Hunter yet in the comic, but this exact scene with the blackboard in it, that would just define what Rip Hunter is as a character, both within the comic book universe and outside of it in the CW DC universe, which has its own like very complicated canon, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's... It's just as complex as the comics, but a lot stupider, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I once described it as if uh, the writers of WWE had their own Doctor Who series. That's exactly what it feels like. That's so accurate. <laughs> it, with the same feeling of, is this good? Am I enjoying this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Legends of Tomorrow is the only one where I can definitively say yes. Like I do enjoy it. It's very silly and yeah. it knows it's real it knows it's really silly. And it has a Doctor Who actor in it though. The guy who plays Rip Hunter was yeah. also on Doctor Who. He was in the TARDIS as a companion. And 
he really gets it. Like the whole he's he's unshaven and he's disheveled. He's in a trench coat and the the whole He gets to play like, the doctor. He really does. He really, really, really does. And the illustration here where you get to see the blackboard for the first time honestly does look like the inside of the TARDIS. Yeah. It's inscrutable. It doesn't mean anything. There's like a bunch of tchotchkes everywhere and you're outdated. It's clearly some super advanced tech, but you have no idea how to use it. You can it. hear that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When time lordy stuff happens. It's a ghosting when there's stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's. It is so interesting to see how many of the current day DC Universe, Extended Universe decisions do actually come from little tiny moments from 52. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the most prominent ones. If anyone, if I talk to people who don't really read comics and they know about anything from 52, they mention either Booster Gold or Rip Hunter. And those are the only two things. That's it. Which is weird because Black Adam is kind of the biggest thing to come out of Right? Like Black Adam's the one with the movie. (laughs) Yeah. That didn't happen without 52. I think people assume that Black Adam was always like that. That's Jeff John's biggest success. His yeah. entire career at DC is trying to convince you a thing he made up has always been that way. He did it exactly one time with Black Adam and it really stuck. I don't know. I think he he did it with uh, Green Lantern oh. and Sinestro and right. Aquaman he he and did. Shazam. Oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> He did it a lot of times, Keita. Sorry. It's just because I forgot that he did all those versions of those things. His work here is done. Exactly. (laughs) Made sure someone's parents died early on. Exactly. Yes. Yes, that's right. He rewrote Barry Allen's origin story that everyone thinks Barry's mom was always killed by reverse flash. He came up with that in 2009. It's wild how that has just become completely cemented into the character now at this yes! point. We also saw the Flash movie in theaters and it wasn't very good. And that is the Flash movie, <laughs> is Reverse Flash. Yeah, the Flash movie is all Jeff Johns. The Aquaman movie is all Jeff Johns. The Shazam movie is all Jeff Johns. As much as people are loath to admit it, the basic central story of Zack Snyder's Justice League is all Jeff Johns. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And herein lies... Some of the problem with the DC Extended Universe, <laughs> I would say. It's all in one guy's head. Yeah. And that doesn't work when that guy isn't really explicitly working on these projects. Right. And is instead starting their own company. <laughs> I mean, we said at the very beginning, the big difference between DC and Marvel is that uh, Marvel has a Stan Lee. And DC has never had a Stan yeah. Lee. It's always been collaborative, a bunch of voices working together and on top of each other. Yeah, which is to me what makes DC more interesting, but it does yeah. also prove this really hard problem of archival uh, efforts and also yeah. of making sense of the whole project. It is complicated and thorny, which can means that things like Egg Foo happen, but also things that just like, like Hawkman, the entire history of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. <laughs> I love Hawkman, and we'll talk about that some other time. Hawkman is great. <laughs> Uh, read Robert Venditti's Hawkman. It's, it, it sets it all straight in one issue. It's a beautiful thing. One of the greatest miracles in modern comics. But I'm getting away from the topic because I want to go to my point on the blackboard, which is once again reiterating Gene Luen Yang's new Superman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's so cr- incredible the feat he pulls off of going through – like the Great Ten literally do show up in New Superman. In fact, almost every Asian character – the more problematic, the better 
shows up for a kind of like character redemption arc in New Superman. Like, for God's sake, let's have someone who has some kind of personal stake in this write something about this character to the point that there's this incredible moment where they go back to the cover of Detective Comics number one, which is this big full shot Fu Manchu face uh, of this like evil Chinese gangster just staring menacingly at the reader and recontextualizing that as like the original sin of the DC universe. And it just has so much to say about how comics use stereotypes and uh, just refurbishing that in a way that makes sense to modern readers that I think Morrison was really trying to do, but lacked the perspective for. And if you're interested in this sort of idea of what if superheroes exist beyond America in the DC universe, that's kind of the best place to look. Well, I just bought the first volume. (laughs) Wonderful. You talked me into it. (laughs) Thank you. It's great. Brian Cronin, do you have anything particular you want to point out? Anything that stood out to you? Um, I guess an interesting, okay. Evil Star's briefly a bad guy in this, right? Let's talk about Evil Star. So what I found interesting, and this ties into the history of the DC Universe at the end, Evil Star is interesting to me as one of the only Green Lantern villains that during the 80s, other writers didn't crap on and turn into sort of a joke character. Yeah. Just by a fluke, by, by a fluke. He got away. Um, I don't think I don't think there was anything specific about Evil Star that kept people from doing that. But it, it, during the eighties, many Silver Age villains, the whole shtick was, "How silly is this Silver Age character?" Yeah, Kite Man is still yeah. a thing. People yeah, are they doing would. Yeah, they would just mock Giffen as amazing as Giffen is. So many Giffen stories are just, "How stupid is this Silver Age character?" Yeah, including like Cap and Cole, like major characters. Right. However, looking at the DC Universe backup story where. They explain Maxwell Lord's Justice League as that the jokey Joseph Justice League was a actual Lord uh, plan or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. he wanted them to be a joke. It strikes me as that same that we're doing the same thing just in the current generation. I That's noticed true. that too, where we're trying to make stuff that was silly on purpose more serious and mocking. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. The revisionist history of Maxwell Lord has been really fascinating to me, like within yeah. the DC universe, where he was like like Ari from Entourage for so long. Yeah. And he was like on purpose supposed to be like that. You know, like he was supposed right. to be just a sleazy guy. And now it's hard to remember that he was just a normal person. He wasn't a metahuman until Countdown to Infinite Crisis. That was the most interesting part of Wonder Woman 1984. The way yeah. Pedro Pascal played Maxwell Lord like he was that Giffen and Dematis Maxwell Lord. He was not like this evil conniving supervillain. He was like, oh, I'm going to get rich off this, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really fun, like it's, it's, it's a little bit like loads of money, like that, uh, that British sketch comedy character that was supposed to be a, like a a parody of 80s excess, but also was embraced by a lot of (laughs) 80s people that didn't get the joke. Mm -hmm. But, uh, it's interesting to see it now as like a sort of an archetype of of the 80s rather than a current reflection on the era because what makes him i think read as goofy sometimes is because he's so 80s yeah. he is very much like wall street you know <laughs> he's like a very, very much. much a very recognizable archetype that specifically yeah. comes from that time 
he's 80s guy from that one Futurama episode, the one with yeah. Leonidas. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that is now what makes the character unique and interesting, but also we have to, in order for the DC universe to work, he has to also have had a master plan and yeah. always been a psychic and always been undermining the Justice League. When, when, you know, when those books came out, they were just a romp and that was fine. I think we can finish this off by taking a couple questions from the mailbag. Uh, I asked our listeners to send us their most difficult questions because we oh, had boy. Brian Cronin on the show. Uh, send them into 52mailbag at gmail.com. I've just picked two at random. Uh, this one comes from Sebastian, who asks, if the Marvel and DC Universe were each one of those giant robot brothers from Amalgam, does the Dark Multiverse have a brother, or was that all inside of the DC Universe brother? And was the DC brother God, as in the Spectre's boss? If not, what was God doing? The thing people love asking me about is what God's deal in the DC universe is, which is a very religious question. It's like, I can tell more about you from you asking me that than you're going to learn. There are angels in the DC yeah, universe. True. There is an afterlife that seems yes. similar to the Christian afterlife in the DC universe. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. Kind of the cosmology is that after you die, you go wherever you think you're going to go. Oh, sick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Which is how hell works. Everyone who goes to hell is someone who thinks they deserve to be there, which is horrifying. I remember, but Gaiman, but Gaiman has the position that whatever versions of death there are exists in the yeah. DC universe. Yeah. At some day when they die, death is going to be there for them. That's yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Because now in the in a, a better integrated way, I would say, than the Alan Moore stuff from Vertigo from the 80s has been yeah. integrated into the DC proper universe. The cosmology of life after death, etc., a lot of that does come from Sandman and Lucifer. That's true, yes. Yeah. The reason that you haven't seen any references to those two brothers from Amalgam is because they are characters jointly yeah. owned from Marvel and DC, and that's exactly. not a thing people can legally do anymore. So you're never going to see another reference to that ever again. Sorry. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go. The first thing he said, the, the where he said, "Were the dark multiverse inside?" That makes sense. Sure. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, now you're going to ask me about the difference between the universe and a multiverse and an omniverse. Whatever. Uh <laughs> yeah. Tell me how it affects the characters on the page, and then yeah. I'll, I'll really care about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if it matters to you, then there are stories about that for you. You're going to get a lot out of infinite frontier. Uh, you're going to get a lot out of Grant Morrison's multiversity. Uh, but most comic books are not really about that and you don't really have to worry about it. This next question comes from Matt S who asks, what's your favorite complete work by Alan Moore that is published by and speaks to DC Comics? Huh, complete. complete is a, the, the big yeah. signifier there, right? Yeah. He's got a lot of things that kind of fizzle out or yeah. <laughs> just didn't quite get finished. Yeah. Complete DC work that speaks to DC overall. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I guess it would have to be Watchmen because we spent the last 40, 30, you know, 37 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's this misconception by, by like a did you know style trivia guy, which let's be honest, I am, that uh, Watchmen is a riff on Charlton comics, but it's a riff on comics in general. It just right. uses Charlton's heroes as a blueprint. It's not about 
Charlton. Nothing has ever been about Charlton. Right, because originally when Moore, when Moore did the initial conception, I believe is what? The ML, the MLJ characters, right? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, what, uh, you know. With so, the shield and the fly? Yeah, it was going to huh. be who killed Private Strong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And using that, that's why there is one character, Hooded Justice, who's like Hangman from. That's true. That's where Hooded Justice comes yeah. from. And so Morrison, I'm not sorry, Moore, Moore's take was more just, that was the general idea. Yeah. Taking, uh, what about a superhero murder mystery where you take right. the superhero characters? Like Rorschach and Night Owl are as much Batman as anybody else. And yeah. Silk Spectre is just, that's just Black Canary. Yeah. I'm going to say that Moore's best DC work is Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Oh, best DC work? Yeah, favorite yeah. complete work by Alan Moore, published by and speaks to DC. That, oh, I thought it was matter that influenced the- The word influenced was not used. Oh, my bad. I'll still stick with Watchmen. But... Yeah. I want to <laughs> say that it's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Right. Be, uh, very much capitalizing the word favorite in that question because it's a book I discovered by accident in my neighbor's long box. And it's oh, like, wow. they wrote a last Superman story and it blew my little mind. And oh, so cute. Yeah. It was as revelatory an experience as the first time I read Sandman. It, it just wow. really expanded my brain. And That's beautiful. I'm always going to treasure that book for what it does and what it did. Uh, Gita, what about you? Mine is also Watchmen. I got that from the library when we, I was like a big reason, one of the big reasons why the local library in my hometown had a comic book and manga <laughs> section. I would be like, can you order this? Can you order this? And then one day I finally was like, okay, I think I've read enough comic books and I'm going to try reading Watchmen. And I was like 16. I didn't really understand it. But like one of the pleasures of Watchmen is that you can read it again and again and again. And I do and every year. find something new yes, in it about obviously. life mm-hmm. and comic books in general. It feels more relevant every year. And there's very few works of Especially art. Especially as people keep copying it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you can see why Johns is so obsessed with yeah. it. Because you could just, you could write entire universes out of little throwaway lines. I always, I what, what, one thing I uh, thought, uh, a thought experiment I sometimes play in my head is like, what does the comic, because we, we see a little tiny sliver of the pirate comic scene. Yes. But what are the other pirate comics that are happening alongside this? What is the Brian Cronin of this universe writing? What pirate comics are he, is he writing about on CBR, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that would be uh, comic buccaneer resources. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question I have, just quick. Speaking of Alan Moore's DC Comics, okay, yeah. for the man who has everything, yes. Why does the Black Mercy not give Superman his quote unquote wish? Because it's not meant to do that. It's not a granter of your greatest desire. I mean, it's supposed to trap you by giving you your greatest no, desire. No, it's supposed it? to trap you, but I don't think – I think it's a misunderstanding that it's supposed to be this perfect world. It's kind of poisoning you. It's a dream that becomes a nightmare. Oh, it's supposed to get nightmarish. I think so. Uh, I mean, other writers have treated it differently because different writers treat things differently all the time. But yeah, it, it wasn't supposed to be pleasant. It was supposed to be a trap. But it's a trap. I thought it was supposed to be a trap because it's pleasant. Yeah, like uh, 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 you know, sirens, Odysseus, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I thought that was the idea, and so I just wonder why Superman's didn't work that way. Maybe Superman can't accept a perfect world. Maybe there needs to be a problem for him to fix. 
He does seem like that's, I mean, if you're a journalist, uh, I this is part of why Lois Lane is my favorite <laughs> character in comics. I'm a journalist, and I, she really is written to think like a journalist, and that's part yeah. of what, like, you know, Clark loves about her, because he's also a journalist. And he, if you, you are always problematizing the things that you do, if you are constantly looking for a story or an under, new understanding of the world. And I think that probably Clark wouldn't accept a fantasy unless there was a problem for him to solve right and he has a family he has a people he it's the things that he could never wish aloud that he wanted made real you can't tell lois that your greatest wish is that i was still on it on krypton yeah (laughs) she'd kick you out (laughs) you'd be done (laughs) yeah i I wish i i wish i had a kryptonian wife lois and kryptonian babies Uh, yeah, I, I wish my I wish my dad was a real jerk to me. That's, yeah. what, <laughs> that's what I've always wanted. Oh yeah. yeah, it's a complicated relationship with my father instead of the perfect relationship I have with my father currently. You yeah. do have to understand that Superman did go back in time a few times and saw what Jor El was like. So maybe if he got along with him too well, he would be like, "Wait a minute, this isn't my dad. My dad's kind of an asshole." That's right, Superman. Back to the Future and his mom before anyone else, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, th- there was one story where Lois Lane tried to seduce Superman's dad, and there was oh, another yeah. story where Lex Luthor tried to seduce Superman's mom. And uh, yeah, the Silver Age was a wild time. Just a real Oedipal time. The list of people who were on Krypton before it exploded is way too long. <laughs> <laughs> They've all been there. Jimmy's been there. You better believe Jimmy's been there. Jimmy's totally been there. He's Superman's babysitter. That rocks. Has White ever made it? Did Perry White ever make it to Krypton? I don't think so. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Missed opportunity. Imagine him seeing the spires of Krypton. Great Caesar's ghost writes itself. There you (laughs) go. Uh, I'm going to say one more thing. The best sequel to Watchmen that has ever been written is uh, Kieran Gillen's Thunderbolt series. Uh, Check that out. Uh, It's him telling a story with the character that Ozymandias was based on, having acquired the rights to him in this kind of metatextual way. That's a really interesting conversation, which all ends on the punchline. You did this 35 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's great. Yeah, it was very good. Uh, One more question from Sebastian I want to address before we go off. Uh, What's the best place for a new reader to start with Grant Morrison's comics from DC? JLA, definitely. JLA. Best place to start? Yeah, like it's easy. It's yeah, it's, it's accessible. Yeah, yeah. it's Very this kind of story you've seen before, but it yes. ties into the mythic and then epic themes that he. You can go straight from there back to the weirder Animal Man. I disagree. I think you start with Animal Man. Yeah, that way you know what Morrison is, and when you go to JLA, you can appreciate. Oh, this is the element that Morrison brings to a Justice League style story. But Animal Man is pure Morrison. But if you want to get someone hooked on it, right? Wouldn't you want go to the one that was a hit? Yeah. JLA was a hit. Like it was yeah. a major popular. Yeah, but they were reading it for. They weren't reading it for Morrison. They were reading it for Superman and Batman, and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and yeah. Green Lantern and the. I've Flash. got an in between pick. Like that's yeah. like slightly in between here, and this is like an unusual one. But I Don't love his crossover. <laughs> I love his crossover series, uh, DC One Million. I love that one. Oh yeah, yeah I also I, really liked One Million the first time I read. You it. don't yeah. have to know anything about the characters that show up in that crossover because they're doing the the One Million BC, you know, Year One Million version. So yeah. it's all like fun one offs, 
And you get to see a, a lot of uh, really specific plot lines and plot threads that he's seeding for other more ambitious stories that they do later. So I actually read DC One Million in the same long box that I discovered uh, oh, okay. whatever happened to Man of Tomorrow in. Yeah. So that happened at that same weekend. I just did a bit because uh, DC One Million, its 25th anniversary is like a couple, like last month. Mazel wow. Tov. Now it's, DC, now it's DC 999,975. It was an amazing series, and part yeah. and part of it was because Morrison actually went out and wrote the crossover issue ideas. Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, who, it yeah. was very ambitious. Who has the uh, wherewithal to write the concepts for all the tie-in issues? Yeah, that's. I mean, it gave it a huge amount of coherency, and it, it seemed like they pitched really good ideas to the exact right writers. Like that's great. Each, especially I thought, I mean, the the one that I think is the most popular from that crossover series is the Starman issue. Yeah. And that is just, again, Oh, the Starman f- One Million issue is so good. It's okay. just another familial drama, yeah. you know, now written up into the stars, into the yeah. future. And it really plays to that series' strengths while also vitally tying into the rest of the crossover. I also really love the Martian Manhunter one million yes. issue where everyone's like on Mars talking about Martian Manhunter and we see he's literally become the planet yeah. and he rejects this person who's perverted what he stands for. I it's love it's that. it's so great. It's John Ostrander really at his best. I like yeah. Morrison's Hitman one where his guidance <laughs> for that was Darth just take the piss. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. No, he they were just clearly knew what exact every single yeah. writer was going to do what they were good at right. and was like just do something Such you're good at. Such a good understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Even the the really dark and grim Batman 1 million stuff there I thought worked really really well with this the conception of what Batman was at that time. I have heard the argument before that Grant Morrison would make a great editor or publisher, which is something they've never expressed any interest in doing. Interesting. But yeah. like DC One Million kind of demonstrates that they that was, do yeah. have the chops for it. You know, a lot of the things that are bad ideas, like the Great Ten, would be good ideas if they handed that idea to, to a, a writer. writer. Yeah, a yes. writer that could handle it and the writer that could that has the right perspective on it. Yeah. Preferably a uh, Chinese American writer would be nice. Man. Yeah, yes. that would be pretty sick. <laughs> would be would be sick. Uh, read New Superman. <laughs> that's all I've got to say for this week. Hey, that's a good. Yeah. That's a very good book. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. If people want to check out what you're up to, what would uh, be the best way for them to do that? Uh, honestly, you Google Brian Cronin, and you'll. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I love that answer. <laughs> just Google just Google Brian Cronin. It'll come up. Yeah. Uh, if you have literally ever had any question about comics, Google that question and something he wrote will probably come up as the answer. <laughs> Absolutely right. I cannot tell you how many times this has literally happened to me while I was researching something for something I was writing. God, it's like, oh, Brian got to this 15 years ago. Perfect. I don't even have to do any more research. I love it. Um, okay. Uh, Gita, do you have any last questions for me? Um, well, here's my big question, actually. Yeah. It's kind of what, like an overarching that? question of this whole mm-hmm. project. Uh, are you ready? Never, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> That's our show. Fifty 
Two Pickup is an Aftermath production created by Gita Jackson and Alex Jaffe and edited by Esper Quim with original music by John Ahrens. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the show's personalities and do not reflect those of DC Entertainment or Warner Brothers. Please rate and review our show wherever you can and send your questions and comments to 52mailbag at gmail.com. Never stop reading comics.